Hello and welcome to St. Paul's United Methodist Church's Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Mike Agnew and it's great to have you listening to our sermons. If you want to find out more about our church, you can reach us in person by going to one of our worship services Sunday mornings at 9.30. Now, that's for a few more weeks and then the first Sunday after Labor Day, September 10th, we'll go back to our school year schedule of having Sunday school at 9 o'clock and then worship at 10.10. But for now, worship services are still at 9.30. If you want to check out what's going on in the life of the church, you can go to our website at www.cherokeemethodist.com. There you can find newsletters, the most recent bulletin, and you can find out about different events that are happening in our church. All right, now we have been spending the entire summer going over the minor prophets in the Old Testament. There are 12 of them. We've been looking at one each week, so for about three months now. Uh, These are those small books at the end of the Old Testament that we oftentimes don't pay much attention to because, well, they're short, so if you blink, you might miss them. And their messages, quite frankly, are not always easy to understand without doing a whole lot of homework. So we just don't spend a whole lot of time on them, myself included. But this summer, we have been diving in to these minor prophets. And we've been finding that while they're all somewhat unique, they also have some commonalities that unite them. Well, today, we are finishing up with Malachi, a small book at only four chapters long. And the Hebrew version has three chapters. Now, the same amount of material, just divided up differently. Now, we don't really know much about Malachi, but the book is probably written during the time of the Persian Empire when the Second Temple had been rebuilt. You know, the people, remember, had been taken into exile in the land of Babylon. Babylon was taken over by the Persians. The Persian ruler, Cyrus allowed the people to return and rebuild. So they rebuilt. And then after it's rebuilt, uh, Malachi is active. So the temple's rebuilt, the sacrificial system is back in place. In fact, many rabbis, which are Jewish teachers, believe that Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are considered to be the last prophets. And the main message for all of them is to follow the Torah or the law. If not following the law got them in this mess, then the reasoning was maybe following it, would get, following it would get them out of it. Now, in his book, Malachi uses a back and forth. You know, he quotes somebody who disagrees with him, and then he gives his response. So he gives these hypothetical conversations to make points. For instance, in chapter 1, God is said to declare that he has shown the Jewish people love. And then the people say, how? How have you shown us love? And God says, well, because of my unique relationship with you. And he compares his relationship with them with his relationship with Edom. And you may remember the story in Genesis of Jacob and Esau, where, you know, it it didn't go well. They didn't get along, and God used Jacob to continue his promise. He blessed Esau too, but he didn't do the bless the covenant through him. He did it through Jacob. And Esau's descendants become the kingdom of Eden, Edom, and Jacob's descendants become the kingdom of Israel and Judah. And so God is just saying, hey guys, look, 
I love you because I have chosen you for a special purpose. It's not that he doesn't care about other people either, but he called them for a special purpose. God has shown them great mercy, and they respond. And so in the rest of the chapter, God kind of gives them the what for. He says, kids should honor their parents, but you don't honor me. And the people respond by saying, how? How are we not honoring you? And God says, well, because when you give your animal sacrifices, they're imperfect. You give blemished animals. You give better animals to your governors than you do to me. Even though you have better animals, even though you have unblemished animals, you sacrifice the ones that are blemished. <laughs> you know, Malachi goes on for a little bit about this. This seems to be a very important subject for them, which again makes sense if the thinking is that we need to follow the law perfectly if they aren't doing the sacrifices correctly, then that's not following the law, right? So they really don't want to mess this up. But it also begs the question for us, what is the right way to worship? When you worship, do you give God your leftovers or your best? You know, when it comes to being in church, there's a difference between being there physically and being fully present. In particular, he focuses on the sacrifices. Now, we don't sacrifice animals, but we do give money. And just as Malachi wanted the people to think about if they're giving their best or they're blemished, we need to consider whether we are giving our best financially or our leftovers. You see, the people back then, they weren't being intentional about their giving. They were just giving whatever was left over, whatever was, you know, they weren't giving up their best. What about you? Are you intentional about your giving to your church? Do you plan out ahead of time what you're going to give? Do you work it into your budget so you make sure it happens? Or do you just give whatever's left after everything else is spent? You see the difference there? I'm not trying to be legalistic, but it is important. Later on in the book, Malachi accuses the people of defrauding God because they don't tithe. So are we defrauding God or are we giving our best? For Malachi, it's a big deal that the sacrifices were not the best ones. He also gets on the case of the priests for not doing the right things in chapter 2. Then he gets into the subject of intermarriage. He kind of covers a lot of ground here. Intermarriage refers to them marrying women outside of their own people. So they're not marrying Jewish women, or maybe they are married to Jewish women, but they divorce them and then they get married to foreign women who have other religions that then get mixed in with their religion. Okay. This is not an issue for us as far as marrying outside of our own race. Um, for them it was because following the law meant remaining pure from other religions. So we're not sure if this was literal or metaphorical because a lot of times marriage is used as a metaphor and adultery or unfaithfulness is used as a metaphor for turning away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, and following other gods. <clears throat> but it could have been both. It could be both metaphorical and literal. By marrying these foreign women, they are bringing in these other gods. And so this gets into the concerns of Ezra and Nehemiah as they are active around the same time and they're dealing with this issue. And Ezra deals with these intermarriages in a very shocking way that we'll get into in another sermon series. But I just want to be clear that the Bible never condemns interracial marriage. 
you know, it's always only condemned in the context of going after other gods. But interracial marriage itself is not condemned. In fact, many of the biblical heroes were married to foreign women. And the book of Ruth itself is a story of a Midianite who is faithful to the Jewish people, and she becomes part of the Jewish family and the family line of David. So it's not condemning interracial marriage. It's condemning um, divorce, but then also abandoning God for other gods. All right, now, chapter 3 is all about asking the question of where the God of justice is when the wicked prosper. This is familiar territory for us. At least two other prophets have talked about this. Why do the wicked prosper? People are saying it's useless to serve God. And Malachi's answer is that God will send a messenger to prepare the way. And then God will come to the temple to purify the priests. This is not a pleasant experience, but they, God needs to come and purify the priests because they aren't doing anything correctly. And so he says, after God comes and purifies the priest, then the offerings will be pleasing to God again. And as for the wicked and the righteous, he says, the Lord will take note. He will remember, and he will treat the righteous well. He says, you will see a difference between the righteous and the wicked. And this here, folks, is where things get dark and, dare I say, disturbing. He says, a day will come that will be burning like an oven. All the arrogant and evildoers will be like straw. Okay, folks, what does straw do in a fire? That's right. It burns up right away, seemingly into nothing. And Malachi says the wicked will be like straw in that they will be burned to ashes, leaving nothing left. The righteous, on the other hand, will receive healing and victory. And guess what? He also says that the righteous will get to trample the wicked to a pulp for they shall be dust beneath your feet. Does that sound like fun? Is that something you think you'd like to do? <laughs> it presents a very disturbing picture in which the righteous become the same or worse than the wicked by getting revenge against them. I've heard some preachers preach that when you're in heaven, you'll be able to watch the wicked suffer in hell and that you will actually enjoy it because it shows God's glory and justice. Well, in Malachi, you actually get to participate in the suffering and bringing on the suffering and destruction of the righteous. I don't know about you, but that's a strong no thanks for me. That's a pretty disturbing view of heaven, and if that's what it is, I'll pass. I'm not going to help contribute to the suffering of others, even if they're wicked. I'd rather follow Jesus, who taught the weird to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies, and to bless those who curse us. And, you know, when Jesus taught that, I don't think he was crossing his fingers behind his back. I don't think he was teaching that we have to be this way now, but then in the end we get to trample people to death or cheer on their torture. That just doesn't make any sense. The Bible says God does not wish for anyone to be punished, but wishes that all would be saved. And if that's true, then how can God also revel in the torture or destruction of his enemies? See, when we see disturbing images like these that show the righteous rubbing it in the face of their enemies, I think that we have to remember, and it can help us to remember, that we are looking from the perspective of an oppressed people. The Bible, almost all of the Bible, was written from the point of view of the oppressed. And most of us, quite frankly... We don't have a clue in what it's like to be oppressed. 
And as such, it's hard for us to understand these disturbing passages where they imagine delighting in the torture of their enemies. It's hard to imagine one of the Psalms that references them hoping that the children of the Babylonians will be dashed against the rocks. But when we are terribly mistreated, the desire for vengeance can be strong. And that desire may not be the best of us, but it is a valid part of us, a part that Jesus taught us not to feed. While we're trying to figure this all out, perhaps now is a good a time as any to tell you that in the early Christian church, there were actually three views of hell or the judgment of the wicked. Contrary to public opinion, there was not a consensus on what happens to the wicked. There were always at least three views, all supported by scripture and all considered valid. The first one is probably the most familiar to you, eternal conscious torment. Uh, It's the most familiar because it's so common in the U.S. Uh, Usually in the U.S. evangelical culture, it's taught as the only biblical view. And if you believe in anything else or even dare to question it, you're falling down a slippery slope and or worse. You're not a Christian. It's interesting that nothing about the particulars of hell or the punishment of the wicked is in our creeds. You see, they just didn't consider it to be a matter that was foundational to their faith. And in fact, not every author of the creeds had the same view. But eternal conscious torment is the one that most of us have heard of. But it might surprise you to learn that there are two others. Now, eternal conscious torment has plenty of scriptural support, including Revelation, where it talks about the wicked seemingly being punished forever and ever. The second view is annihilation, or conditional immortality, which is the view that the wicked will be destroyed. You know, there's a scripture about not fearing the one who can kill the body, but the one who can destroy both body and soul. The scripture here in Malachi that we're talking about certainly seems to portray the destruction of the wicked, a fire that leaves nothing left. In this view, the wicked don't suffer forever. They cease to exist to enjoy enjoy immortality at all. So there's that view, and there's scriptural support behind it. And then the third view is universal reconciliation, which is the belief that God, because God desires for all to be saved, God will eventually get what he wants. Otherwise, he would not be victorious over evil. So the idea of this view is that after death, all go through judgment, all go through the fire, so to speak, some more than others. But the fire represents not an endless torture, but more like a refiner's fire, meant to purify and sanctify. And the idea is that a person still has a choice even after death, that God will never turn away someone for ask, who asks for mercy. And this theory says that eventually all people in their right mind will say yes to God. Now, an obvious argument against this is free will. Don't we have the free will to say yes or no to God? And if everybody eventually is saved, doesn't that mean that our free will to say no to God is taken away? Now, some would say yes and some would say no. An illustration is given of a person walking through the desert. They're out of water and they're getting weak and they're slowly dying from dehydration. In fact, they've lost so much strength that they can only crawl. And then they come across you. You've set up a water station, kind of like at a 5K race. 
you offer them water. And what do you think they're going to say? Do they have the free will to say no? Well, sure they do, but they'd have to be out of their minds. They'd have to not be thinking clearly to say no, because if they were in their right mind, they would always say yes, because they would choose the thing that leads to life and not death. And in the, in the same way, the person facing the fires of purification would have to not be thinking clearly to choose torture over life. But if they chose life, they would do so as sanctified people, not the evil people they were. So scriptures that support this include 1 Corinthians 15, where it says that just as in Adam all have died, <clears throat> so in Christ all will be made alive. The argument is, if we believe all have died to sin through Adam, and it says all are made alive in Christ, doesn't all mean all? And then another scripture, Philippians 2.11, where it talks about every tongue, every knee bowing, and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Oftentimes people imagine the wicked being forced to their knees and forced to declare Jesus as Lord through gritted teeth before they are dropped into eternal conscious torment. But then proponents of view, this view will say that in the Greek, there's a missing word. Instead of saying every tongue will confess, it should say every tongue will gladly confess, which is much different. So three views, all supported by Scripture, and no consensus in the early church, and they didn't feel the need to reach one. Now, for the first 500 years of church history, universal reconciliation was the dominant view. We know of at least six theological schools at the time. Four of them taught universal reconciliation. That would be Alexandria, Antioch, Caesarea, and Edessa Nispis. One school taught conditional immortality or annihilation. That was Ephesus. And one school taught eternal conscious torment. That was Rome. In the early church, there was no need to agree on all this. They just didn't consider it a pillar of the faith, and they could work together in spite of it. But Malachi definitely lends itself to conditional immortality or annihilation. All right, now, Malachi ends by talking about Elijah. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament who was taken up to heaven by chariots. So he didn't have a normal death, and people have a field day whenever a person doesn't technically die in the Bible. All kinds of traditions and legends arise about the person uh, appearing or returning from the dead. And for Malachi, the, he believed that Elijah would return. He would be the messenger to prepare the way for God. Now, usually when we think of this, we think of John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus because Jesus says that John fulfilled this. But that's not what Malachi was talking about in his time. Malachi's view was much more dark. The messenger, Elijah, is coming to prepare the way for God to come and issue judgments and punishments for the wicked. And Elijah prepares by reconciling people to each other so God doesn't have to kill everyone. Does that sound like Jesus to you? What happened here? What's with the incongruency between Malachi and Jesus? Well, fast forward 400 years to Jesus, and you see that they are interpreting their Hebrew scriptures very differently. As I said, Jesus views John the Baptist as fulfilling the role of Elijah mentioned in Malachi. And what did John preach? He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
And he was very much in the same vein as Malachi. John the Baptist believed God was coming to judge and to bring the fire of judgment. And, you know, basically he says the message is coming to judge you all. But Jesus did not agree with John. Jesus did not follow this script. He said he came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. He came to befriend sinners and to forgive them. Jesus showed a radical, reckless kind of love and forgiveness that is simply not even considered as possible by Malachi. But Jesus read these verses differently than anyone before him. In fact, at one point early in his ministry, Jesus quotes Isaiah, talking about the day of the Lord and how uh, he has come to give sight to the blind, uh, healing to the sick, on and on he goes. And he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your healing, in your hearing. So he says that Jesus is fulfilling this. However, the interesting thing is that when Jesus quotes Isaiah here, he stops precisely at the point where Isaiah starts talking about God's wrath. Coincidence or not? You tell me. I don't know. But it's very telling. You see, Jesus interpreted scripture differently all the time. In the Sermon on the Mount, the formula is, you've heard that it was said, and then he quotes scripture, and then he says, but I say to you. And his disciples followed his example by interpreting their scriptures in new ways as well, in light of the love of God revealed in Jesus. And folks, that's a good thing, because if they hadn't adapted their faith, their theology, and their reading of the scriptures, the Christian faith would never have become a worldwide religion. You'll see what I mean in our next sermon series on the book of Acts. So, to wrap up, although Malachi paints a dark picture, it also ends with hope. Hope that the wicked and corrupt will not prosper forever. That God will someday make things right. It's interesting that in the Hebrew Bible, the prophets are not at the end of the Old Testament. They're followed by the Psalms and other writings But in Christian Bibles, the prophets are at the end because they are seen as pointing towards the Messiah. So then you go right from them to Jesus. So the Old Testament and the minor prophets in general, while at times are disturbing and difficult to understand, while sometimes they are dark in their portrayals of judgment, they end with hope. A hope that God will act. A hope that God has not forgotten them. And a hope that God will set things right. Now, we know that he has done so through Jesus Christ and that one day it will be brought to completion. And all the details of how it will come about or what it will be like, we are unable to know. And we don't really need to know or come to a consensus on it. But we know that God will be victorious in the end. And that is more than good enough. Amen. God bless and have a great week.